you know, I just sold like a, an eight figure business and, and now I'm passing out fucking door hangers. Hello, welcome back to the Wild Business Growth Podcast. This is your place to hear from a new entrepreneur every single Wednesday morning who's turning wild ideas into wild growth. I'm your host, Max Brandstetter, founder and podcast producer at Max Podcasting. And you can email me at max at maxpodcasting.com to save time with your high-quality podcast. This is episode 193, or 193, and today's guest is Brian Clayton. Brian is the co-founder and CEO of GreenPal, the super cool company that connects homeowners with lawn care professionals in their area. It's an online marketplace, and he started it after he spent years building Peachtree, which became one of the largest lawn care slash landscaping businesses in the state of Tennessee. Brian is full of gems, green gems, we'll call it. And in this episode, he talks everything from bootstrapping your business, getting customer feedback, focusing on product versus marketing versus question mark versus etc. And we even get into some Mario Kart, which is probably the most important thing out of all those. It is Brian Clayton, aka Brian Clayton. Gotcha there. Enjoy the show. Alrighty, we are here with Brian Clayton, the probably world's greatest expert on lawn care and landscaping and starting businesses out of those, but the uh, CEO and co-founder of Green Pal and lots of success. And lots of success. That's a tongue twister. Lots of success with Petrie before that. Brian, thanks so much for joining. How are you doing today? Max, great to be on the show, man. Thanks for having me. Of course. Of course. I mean, just the thought. I think for anybody that mowed the lawn, their lawn, or anybody else's lawn growing up, just the thought of like freshly cut grass is just brings out good memories of nostalgia and, and, and summertime and, and happiness. So it's cool you've, you've started businesses around that. We're, we're going to get into those today. There is one very unique and cool story that I'd love to start out with. And that involves you with McDonald's and cigarette butts. So <laughs> how, can you share the story of how you started working with McDonald's as a client? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thanks for bringing that up. That brings back some PTSD. <laughs> okay. And, and and probably some Big Macs as well. You bring up the smell of uh, freshly cut grass. I hate that smell. <laughs> I think uh, I think if I never have to mow another yard in my life, uh, I'll be happy. <laughs> but uh, I never really liked mowing yards, but I saw it as my lane to like improve my position in life, I guess. And so I started mowing yards in high school as a way to make extra cash. And, and it just stuck with me. I thought, man, this is great. I own my own business. I can make as much money as I want. And, and why doesn't everybody do this? And, uh, and I just stuck with this lawn mowing business all through high school and all through college. And, and, uh, ended up growing one of the largest landscaping businesses in the state of Tennessee, where I live. I got that business over 150 employees, over 10 million a year in revenue. And then in 2013, I sold it. But growing that business from just like me and a push mower, you know, me 
knocking on people's uh, doors, uh, begging, begging them to mow their yard for them, uh, you know, and growing it into like a commercial based business was a little bit of an evolution. And it, I think, I think if you want to scale that type of business, you have to go after the bigger contracts. You have to go after the bigger, uh, like six figure and up deals for, for, for facilities maintenance. And it took me like three or four years to figure out how to do that in that business and kind of rebuild it from the inside out. And my first, my first commercial customer was McDonald's. I actually, uh, and I, and I, and I, no matter how many cold calls I did and how many like cold visits I did, how much door knocking I did on, on commercial properties, I never could like cut my way in. I never could get anybody to take a chance on me. And this, uh, so happened to luck up and start mowing the residential property for a franchiser. And, uh, he owned, I think three locations at the time. And every year I would beg him like, Hey, let us bid on the contract for your three locations. And he would say, no, we're locked in with somebody that corporate has, has us using and they suck and we don't really like them, but you know, we have to use them. And, and I thought, man, you know, uh, I know, I, I know this guy will give me a chance if I can just figure out a way to get on his radar. I don't know where I came up with this idea. I think I was eating at, at, at one of his restaurants and I just noticed that the drive through was filthy like it was full of cigarette butts and and debris and like chewing gum and like this nasty stuff and and I thought man this is like this is pitiful this is one of the world's most valuable companies and the drive through looks awful and then I started noticing like all McDonald's looked that way and I thought well I'm going to I'm going to propose to this guy that for the same price as what he's paying now we will detail the the drive through and we will clean up all of that stuff uh, literally like with our bare hands, pick up cigarette butts and chewing gum and, and trash and bubble gum wrappers. I'm, star- I'm starting to gather why the PST, your PTSD comment, it literally, makes a lot more sense. Now. Literally, man, like we, you know, and, and so I, I pitched him on this and, and he thought, you know what, if you're going to do that, knock yourself out, I'll give you a shot on one restaurant. And so every time we would like come service the property, we would on my hands and knees, crawling through the drive-thru, picking up cigarette butts and putting it in like a five-gallon pail. I've probably picked up a million cigarette butts in my life. But it looked great when we got done. Like it looked, it looked, and we took before and after pictures. This was back in like 2002. So literally like going to Walgreens and developing pictures and mailing them to this guy with the, with the invoice and, and showing him, you know, that, hey, you know, when you hired us to, to mow, your, mow the yard, you really, you didn't hire us to mow the yard. You hired us to sell more Big Macs. You hired us to sell more apple pies because it's our belief that if the drive-through looks spotless, people will, will upgrade the, to the extra value meal. And I don't know if that was true or not. It had to be because, I mean, it looked better. And, uh, and so he's like, you know, uh, I'd like for you to do all three of my locations. So we did all three of his locations for a couple of years, and then we proved out a track record. And then he enabled me to pitch i guess you could say the regional group of franchisers and and corporate owned stores and so over a three or four year period of time i was able to develop that into probably a half million dollars a year in in business because we ultimately we ended up doing every single mcdonald's location within a hundred mile radius of nashville tennessee something like 150 locations and it all started you know with just figuring out a different way to sell our services and and align what it is we did with what our customers goals were you know we didn't want to just be the cheapest way to get the lawn mode we wanted to be a solution 
to them increasing same store sales. And I think it worked. And that, so that was like a philosophy that we used to develop business uh, for that company. And it worked. I think so. And it's almost, it's really cool hearing you talk through it because it's, it literally, it sounds like you're describing a metaphor, like of like, you know, sometimes you def- have to do like the hard, dirty work in order to see results. And like, you can't get more of dirt, quote unquote, dirty work than picking up millions of cigarette butts <laughs> off the ground and then making it beautiful. But it, it was a really, a really great differentiator for you. And if you're somebody who's a franchisee and someone's giving you a a proposition that you don't even really need to consider because you got you know corporate things available to you. When somebody offers something that's like over the top customer service like that, uh, I see why they they jumped on you and why that blossomed into such a great customer for you. So that, that, that's really cool, and uh, I'm sure Ronald McDonald is thank you thankful as well. <laughs> yeah. Let's get to uh, the Green Pal story. Here it's it's pretty cool because you. You've kind of fused some of your early learnings from the business world and the landscaping and lawn care. You know your favorite hobby of uh, your favorite smell of all time of fresh cut grass, <laughs> as well as uh, uh, some technology and making an app that's user friendly and connecting people together. So, so that's really cool in, in itself. To start off there, you know Peachtree you had sold it was acquired by another company back in 2013. Where was your mindset? around the time you're starting Green Pal? Like, are you, were you itching to get back in the game or like, were you just kind of coasting around that time? Yeah, it's, uh, so the first business was 15 years, you know, just me and a push mower to me and 150 people, 90 trucks going out every day and, and built a really, really good team of folks around me. And like that business was almost like my family, really. The people that worked there were, were as close to me as family and, and so I sold it, and it was painful. It was uh, it was a lot more painful than I thought it was going to be. And so I had to kind of go through like a like almost like a melancholy period, like uh, an uh, almost like an identity crisis because this thing that it really I never have I've never had a job, never worked for anybody. Like I only ran that business, and so that was gone. And so I was like, well, who am I? And what what am I here? What what am I here to do? And the answer to those questions uh, has always been my business. Like the business has been the thing that causes me to take on new challenges, have a purposeful life, to be creating something that doesn't yet exist and and developing opportunities for people that work with me on it. And that's a lot of fun. And I didn't have that anymore. And and I guess, you know, I thought my goal was to live the, the quote unquote good life. And I tried that for like six months and I got really bored. And I thought, man, I, I need I need to start another business because that's missing, and I'm getting sloppy. I'm getting fat. Uh, there's all these other things like these these ancillary side effects from not having an, a mission that 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 that's hurting me. I guess on a, a really personal note, do you mean actually fat, physically fat, or you mean like metaphorically? Like can't you know like size forty jeans. <laughs> I'm, I'm historically bad with jean size, but that that helps a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's not the size you want. Oh, a size 42, 44 is where I was, where I was living. And, and so like the business was, was, was locking in all of these other disciplines in my life, really like getting up early, going to the gym, doing uh, cardio, uh, reading books, you know, listening to podcasts and, and getting better and smarter and, and being humble and all of these like good virtues, like the business was the forcing function behind all those things. And, and it was and it wasn't there anymore and so now I was kind of coasting and 
and I didn't like it. I didn't like what I was becoming. And so I thought, well, I'm going to start another business. But that first business was really, really hard. I don't want to do anything that hard again. And it was really stressful. So this time I'm going to start an easy business. I'm going to start a software business. And uh, it was naivete as an asset. I didn't really know what I didn't know. I thought a software business was easier because, well, why wouldn't it be easier? I don't have all this equipment and I don't have all these employees anymore and I don't have all these headaches and uh, a software business kind of solves all those things and, and you just build it and then you get rich. And that's kind of like the fantasy that a lot of people are seduced by. I sure was. I was going to say, build it and get rich. That's that's a very uh, shortened version of <laughs> what it actually might yeah, be. Yeah, it's, well, it's just like the social network, you know, like uh, that's a great movie. But every movie about entrepreneurialism, like the part about where they work really hard on the business and where they're like grinding is always set to like, the background of like a photo montage and it like goes by, <laughs> goes by in like two minutes or something, you know, what they don't show you because it's not particularly glamorous or entertaining is that it's really, really, really hard to get something going from scratch. And these overnight successes almost never happen. And I was seduced into the idea of building a, a tech business. And I had an idea that an app should exist for what I just spent 15 years doing. You should be able to, pop your address in an app and, and, and hire somebody to come take care of your yard work that didn't exist. Then it exists now because we've built it, but it, it, it was, uh, it was a new idea, but I, I was validated in the idea with other apps like Uber and Lyft and Airbnb Postmates at the time Instacart was just getting going. And I saw these other examples of, of apps making these kind of like real world chores really simple and magical and i thought well somebody's gonna build that and it couldn't be that hard <laughs> no <laughs> i mean it's a, it's a simple movie montage i mean what yeah <laughs> yeah and so recruited two co-founders and we got in there and started working on it and we were quickly confronted with the reality of how challenging not only building an app is but but building a marketplace uh you know that connects buyers and sellers is, is hard and, and not only this but i didn't know i didn't know i didn't realize this either there's a big difference between running like a business, like a known business, and then also and then and versus inventing something brand new from scratch that doesn't yet exist. And I guess I didn't know how hard that was either. Um, and so all these things were like confronting me at the same time. Is that this doesn't exist. There's no roadmap for it. We have to figure it as we go. Building an app actually is hard. There's the technical execution. You, I didn't know how to write software at the time, and neither did my co-founders. So that was hard. The third thing is, is like the dynamics of a marketplace connecting buyers and sellers is a lot more challenging than it looks. And so all of these things at the same time, we like, we were dead on arrival. We, uh, we pulled our money together and paid a de development shop, like 150 grand to build what we thought green pal should be and took them nine months and we released it. And it was just a total flop and couldn't get anybody to use it couldn't even get my own mother to use it. And so we just, we were, we were like, damn, this is hard. But at the time we were reading a book called the startup owner's manual. And it's this guy named Steve blank. And he was the college professor, I think of, for, for, of a, of a guy named Eric Reese who wrote a book called the lean startup. 
And so what those two books tell you in a thousand pages is basically when you're inventing a new technolo technology and you're inventing a new product from scratch, all you have to go on is user feedback. And you have to solicit that user feedback. You have to get that user feedback and you have to make it really easy for people to tell you where you suck. And, and uh, then you take that feedback and you distill it down into actionable things that you can do to drive the product forward. And you do that in an iterative fashion rather than like just coding something up for nine months and then releasing it and realizing you were all wrong about everything. And so we took all that to heart and we hustled up maybe a hundred people to use that first version that we paid that development shop to build. Uh, and we hustled these folks up by passing out door, ha door hangers, like flyers all over Nashville, Tennessee. We passed out probably a hundred thousand of these, these goddamn things. <laughs> you got PTSD from this too. Yeah. And I'll tell you a quick, another quick, funny story. Uh, so, so here I am, you know, I just sold like a, an eight figure business and, and now I'm passing out fucking door hangers. Uh, begging people <laughs> to live by <laughs> begging people to use my shitty app for $27 to mow their yard. So that's what, that's another good thing about a business. It's humbling. It's what I needed at the time, to be honest, it was very humbling, but, uh, my two co-founders are, are out there and I, and we're passing out these door hangers and, and in the same day I got bit by a dog twice, uh, and, oh my God. <laughs> like blood drawn <laughs> and, and I thought, this this sucks. This is no way to acquire users. But it was what we had to do at that time, at that level of the game, I guess you could say, uh, to get 100 people, maybe 200 people to use it. And we needed those people to use it to get the feedback to understand how we were going to rebuild it. And when we talked to these folks, you know, the, f the fucking thing never worked. Like, you know, somebody would sign up and the quotes and then somebody would bid, but they wouldn't actually show up and mow the yard or they would mow the yard, but they would do a shitty job or they'd mow the yard, but their, their lawnmower was too big. Couldn't get through the gate in the back, or it could get through the gate, but they let the gate open, let the dog out. Or, uh, they mowed the yard right after it rained and left grass all over like the sidewalk, like a million things go, were going wrong. And so we would we would like be confronted with these with this negative feedback over and over and over again in people's kitchen tables and at Starbucks and uh, you know we know the, I know the inside of every Starbucks in Mill Tennessee, Atlanta Georgia and Tampa Florida because those were the first three markets we launched and so <laughs> and so and so we would meet with these people and they would tell us everywhere we sucked but we never we never heard. I don't need this. Like what we saw, what they were like, man, this would be awesome if this actually did work. But we never saw apathy. We never saw, we never heard like, like people say, ah, you know, it's kind of a neat thing, toy, but it doesn't really solve a problem for me. So we saw the fact that there was a pain point that we were trying to solve. And if we could just figure out how to solve the 999 things that go wrong, systematically that we might have something. And so that was enough to validation for us to keep going and learn how to build software. Like we had to, like I became the world's shittiest front end engineer and my co-founder 
not to take anything away from him, but went to boot camp and he became a, a good enough back end engineer, which is all we needed at the, at the time. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say the world's second shittiest front end <laughs> or back end engineer. <laughs> he was, he, he's a lot better. Uh, he's a much better developer than I ever, ever was or ever will be. But he, he, he went to like an eight month boot camp. The boot camp was nine grand and he put that on his credit card. So he went to, he went to negative nine grand. To, to to help pull us out of the out of a ditch. <laughs> uh, on that technology note, I mean, you mentioned the <laughs> the, the financial uh, and, and like length of how much it took to to develop this and and for you guys to learn these skills and, and whatnot. But what percent of your time would you say, uh, especially at the start, the first couple of years, was focused on the technology versus like the people part, like your homeowners and and lawn care professionals part. You're playing whack-a-mole in the early days of any of any business, and you're doing you're doing a bunch of things at the same time. So I always say that when you're starting a new business of any sort, you're doing three things at once. Uh, you're working in the business, which is just holding it together, uh, and then and you know it's whatever you get, whatever you can do to make sure the trains run on time, and then you're working on the business. You know, you're developing systems, processes, routines. Uh, standard op- operating procedures, and that's building an actual business. And 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 those two th- those two concepts are codified in the E Myth by Michael Gerber. Then there's the third thing that nobody talks about, but you're working on yourself. So you're working on you're doing those three things at the same time, at all times, running a business. Maybe to different degrees, and maybe you know like different. Uh, uh, maybe Monday through maybe in the early days, Monday through Fridays in the business, Saturdays on the business. And then Sundays on yourself, but you have to work on yourself. You have to learn skills. Like I had to learn how to write front end code and had to learn how to do product design and learn how to do basic user interface design and basic SEO and all of this shit that that nobody teaches you. You you know, you got to find, you got to carve out time to learn this stuff. And so, and so for us, like it was a balancing act between executing the actual like development of the technology, writing the code and then, and then listening to all of the things that people were telling us where we sucked and distilling that into one or two objectives for that week to make the product better. It was basically triage, you know, it was, it was basically like, these are the two problems that we, that, that we see the most on a daily basis that we have to focus on now and not worry about anything else. One thing, you know, we've been at this for a decade now. We're a 10-year overnight success. I can hear the music montage in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, by, by no means are we anywhere near finished. We're still very much at day one. But but at least, you know, now we have 300,000 people using this thing. We're doing like $30 million a year in revenue. But the first couple of years, we had hundreds of users if we were lucky. And I can say what I've, my point is, like, over a decade of doing this, I've never been at a loss for what we needed to focus the team on because we just make it really, really seamless and frictionless for people to tell us what they're pissed off about. And so I, I, you know, back then I did customer support seven days a week, 20 hours a day, eh, maybe, maybe 18 hours a day. But if I wasn't in bed, I was answering tickets. And, uh, you know, I, I, we used uh, then and still use intercom.com. And Intercom has a, a nice mobile app. And so if you are sufficiently uh, de- dedicated as a founder, 
you can have a direct pipeline to your upset customers seven days a week through the intercom mobile app. I mean, it will buzz you. It'll buzz you every single time uh, somebody hits you up in the chat. And if you want, you can you can do that support yourself, and then you will never be at a loss for what you need to be working on because your customers will tell you. And uh, and that's what we did. That's what we did. And I still do it now. I still do at least an hour a day of customer support because there's this weird thing that happens when you're founding a business in the early days and it gets worse as time goes on. There's a big gap that develops between founder logic and customer logic. And so the customer is looking at the problem uh, from a certain, I guess, uh, paradigm, a, a certain uh, perspective, and you're looking at it from a totally different perspective. And so there's this gap that develops between customer logic and company logic. And so if you do your own customer support as much as you can in the early days and as you scale the business, it helps close that gap. And uh, it helps you stay on track with building something that people want. And that's what that's something I did then and still do now. And still we still use Intercom. That's awesome. I mean, you read my mind. I was going to ask how you make it frictionless, but that that's like almost negative friction if it's a, a direct line to the CEO and the, and the founders. You, it's got to be, especially in the early days, it's got to be zero friction, customer to founder. And that means your cell number on the emails, uh, the emails pop you right back on intercom or on your, on your Gmail. It does, it, it doesn't mean that, uh, your support, your, your transactional emails are no reply at company.com. <laughs> How'd you know my email? You literally like, I see this founders of new startups. They have 12 customers or maybe, maybe 50 and their transactional email goes to a, no, to a no response. Like you need that feedback. It needs to hit you up. I, I promise you, you're not that busy as a new founder. And I promise you the highest leverage time you can spend is talking to customers in, in years one, two, and three. And signing up for your own product to validate all of the stuff that they're telling you that needs to be fixed and improved. So that's a painful lesson I had to learn the hard way that I try to, I try to beat in the people's heads. I appreciate all the, the head beatings. So, so that's the relationship between customers and CEO. Another relationship that's to, essential to GreenPal is the relationship and these connections between the actual homeowners and the lawn care professionals that they end up hiring and working with through your app, through your marketplace. I guess between the two of those, what has been more of um, a challenge to like vet and get right and make sure, you know, the right people are using your app like hassle-free? Yeah, it's if we really have two customers, you know, we have to make it easier to conduct business and get things done for both sides of the transaction. Because if vendors don't love it, if they're not making more money on the platform than they could off the platform with less headache, they're not going to use it. And if they don't use it, then there is no product or service for the homeowner. So it's a, it's a delicate balance that we have to get right. And, it's, and at times we've overcorrected on one side or the other. And every marketplace deals with this. You know, if, if Uber, for example, you know, every, you know, every consumer that uses Uber would love to get 
picked up in a uh, a Bentley that sits outside waiting for them for for 25 minutes uh, to take them to the airport for seven dollars. You know, like that's the consumer <laughs> expectation that hits every possible touch point and desire. <laughs> but that's not you know that's that's not what the driver wants. The driver doesn't want to wait on your ass out there for longer than about a minute. And if you're lucky. The car doesn't smell like shit, and and it's gonna be it's gonna oh, be forty five dollars to go to the airport. So, so the reality is, it's like you you have to strike the balance between the two, and 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 that's always been a challenge for us. I think the way we kind of been able to start off on the right foot was that you know I had fifteen years of experience in the industry, so I kind of knew you know at least we were able to start off on first base. Uh, based on what the tool set needed to be for service providers, what their psychology was, what their mentality is, what they're looking for, what their pain points are, you know, and, and we solved for those and we kind of kind of got that right out of the gate. Now, that said, you know, we still are always making improvements and trying to figure out a way. We really care about one thing. How do we make lawn care service providers, lawn pros more money? That's it. Everything else dovetails off of that. Um, how do we make them more money? How do we tee them more up, up more opportunities for, for new clients? How do we help them upsell? How do we help them retain their customers? How do we help them uh, drive profitability with better route optimization? And, and solving for that really, sol- really answers pretty much every question in our business. Make vendors more money. And how do we, how do we create efficiencies and, and, and do that? Is, is, is what we started off doing 10 years ago and what we're still doing today. On the flip side of that, how, how do you still uh, achieve that goal and stay behind that mission while making sure that the homeowners aren't feeling like, oh, you know, they're just paying too much for this and, and they're getting the, the results they like to see from this? It's a self-correcting, I guess you could say, balance because the reality is homeowners, I mean, they're not going to pay, pay a premium for for anything. Like you can order an Uber and take a ride to the airport and it's going to be 20 bucks, or you can call an, an old fashioned taxi company. It's going to be about the same price. So you're not going to pay a super premium for the convenience. No homeowner will. And so we, we have to solve for that. And so it's like, how do we drive down the cost of lawn mowing to where vendors can get through these stops quicker uh, they can win business easier, uh, and they can do it at a at a more competitive price than in the in the analog world. And so, one way we do that is, you, you, normally as a as a as a lawn care service professional, you you would get like twenty calls a day, and then you have to ride around and go look at these properties and give them estimates and and then like you know, work out and negotiate a price with them and and come back and mow the yard we serve up these these opportunities to vendors on the fly to where they can bid them without even going out to the property. So that's one way that we save them time where they can quote 20 in like five minutes rather than 20 in a week. Uh, so that saves them time to where they can they can be a little more efficient. They can offer a little bit better pricing. The other thing is we, we attempt to drive as much route density as possible to where a vendor can do 10 stops in one zip code rather than 10 stops all over the metropolitan area. And and the drive time really is a big cost driver in this service. You know, spending 15 minutes, and especially with gas, what it is today, uh, really trying to drive those opportunities to where you already have customers uh, and it enables you to, to be a little more competitive. And GreenPow actually is cheaper even even after the take rate uh, in the in the in the marketplace, it actually is cheaper on average than just calling somebody off of like uh, 
Angie's List or something like that. So you've seen and led tremendous growth with Green Pal as well as Peachtree. And looking back at both of these businesses now, I, I know very much still plenty of work to do with Green Pal, but uh, looking back at both of these, what would you say is the one main takeaway that like, oh, this like this was key for driving growth in both these businesses? Well, the first thing is, is there's a saying that first-time founders worry about product and second-time founders worry about distribution. And so what I mean by that is like the first-time founder, and I've been guilty of this, obsesses over you know what the product's going to look like or what the service is going to be. And this goes for any business. It might even be like if you're opening up a bakery. You know, the person that loves to bake pies is opening up a bakery for the first time and they're worried about what color is the awning, what does the recipes look like, what are we going to paint the floor, uh, what kind of cool stuff we're going to have hanging on the wall. That's the product. Whereas if you've opened a bakery and maybe failed or you opened a chain of bakeries and sold it, now you're starting your second bakery gig or whatever, you're worried about like, What's the, what's the marketing hook? What's the distribution? What's the social media strategy? What's the, what, what does the distribution look like? Cause that's all I care about. If I can't get people to come in the front door, it doesn't matter how cool the bakery is. And so that is a lesson I've had to learn the hard way is, is that if you build it, they will not come. Uh, you have to innovate on product and you also have to innovate on growth and distribution. And you have to figure out, like in the early, early days, how are you going to get people to, to discover this service or, or product that you have? And, how, and what is that actual like execution of that strategy going to look like? And then setting aside time for that. And I wasted years in my first business and years in my second business uh, under-emphasizing those activities. It took me like five years in the lawn mowing business to realize that I wasn't selling lawn like I wasn't a lawn mowing company I was a sales company and that I and that really what we were good at was developing business and prospecting business pitching new business and closing business I had a sales team of like six people and uh, I was the sales manager for many years yeah we did a great job at landscape maintenance services also but that was table stakes really what we were best in market at was sales and now with green pal we are the preeminent, like the best marketer of lawn mowing services in the United States. Not that that's saying a lot. It's not a real sexy industry, but we are. Hey, it's it's sexy. It's sexy. Don't, don't be homeless. <laughs> <laughs> we, we spent a decade learning how to drive traffic to the property, how to, how to be where people are looking for. When you're in Lincoln, Nebraska, and you're looking for a lawn mowing service, how is Green Pal in that conversation? And so while we're really good at helping you find a great lawn mowing service at a great price, really none of that shit matters because we have to be the best in the world at, at distribution. Product and, and, and all of that stuff is table stakes. You have to be, you also have to innovate on growth and distribution. Distribution is rather key in the podcasting world as well because if your podcast can't be found, your podcast can't be listened to. It's very tough to do that. If you need help getting your podcast on all the key podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, if you're looking for a recommendation network like that, 
as well as having a fantastic set of marketing materials to share out for your podcast and attract current and new listeners as well. Hit me up at maxamaxpodcasting.com. I can help you with all the above, and I'll throw a dad joke in there every now and then too. I'll, I'll stumble over my throwing in of dad jokes, but every now and then I'll, I'll try to make you laugh as well. Hit me up at maxamaxpodcasting.com to save time with your high-quality podcast. Now, let's get unusual with Brian in a segment I'm calling Unusual with Brian. Let's get a little bit unusual. We're going to dive into uh, you as a person and your personality, some pet peeves, quirks, weird talents you have. You can tie them to the business if you want, or they could just be totally about you and not tie to the business at all. So first one is, what's your biggest pet peeve? I hate when people are late. I think it's disrespectful and it's uh, self-centered. Uh, but I, but then again, I read an article the other day that people that are late live longer because <laughs> they're not really worried about anything. <laughs> they don't give a, I, well, yeah, yeah. They're, they're late till the funeral party. They don't give a fuck. They just show up whenever they're ready. And so maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's gotta be an interesting study. Who knows? We'll check it out eventually. What is a, uh, a quirk you have something a little quirky about your personality that your family, friends, somebody calls you out for, but it's who you are. You know, you probably glean this off, out of, off. What I hope anybody gets from hearing me do a podcast interview like this one is that if that guy can do it, I can do it. I'm like not great at anything. I'm pretty average at a lot of shit. <laughs> so I guess a, I guess a quirk is like I, I, I don't like people that waste my time. I don't. Uh, I'm almost kind of like a jerk about it. And I just try to get shit done. And I'm not particularly like good at anything other than like just being consistent and getting shit done. And I don't like people that stand in the way of that. And, and so I guess one of my quirks is, is I don't suffer that at all, almost to a point of like rudeness. And maybe I should work on that, but that's me being a bit, I guess, self-aware. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you're such a dick. I, no, I'm just <laughs> so, no, but I think that's uh the kind of Jack of all trades, but only to a certain extent and the getting shit done, ability is like really really good for being an entrepreneur and like what the, uh, that stuff is what's driven you know you and your businesses to to kind of get to this level and, and, and obviously um you know you've tried out a lot of different skills but clearly like you're you know you're hiring a ton of people you're working with a ton of people like you've been able to recognize when you shouldn't be do- spending time on a certain area and somebody else is better suited to do that I think being like 80, 20 good at a lot of different things is, is particularly helpful when, you, when you're in like levels one, two, and three of the game. And uh, that's the hardest part, I think, is getting through. Like if you want to like look at business as Super Mario Brothers, you know, the, the first three or four levels are the hardest uh, to get through uh, in business. And I think if you're like half-ass good at a lot of different things, that can be what, what helps you get through that stuff because you're going to be doing a lot of it yourself anyways. And then, and then you can then delegate to people who are a lot better than you are at these things because you know a little bit about it. Every time I've tried to delegate something that I didn't know anything about, it's never worked out. Mm. That's that's interesting. You hear so many people talk about delegation, but not 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 working out. What do you mean by that? Well, for instance, when when we tried to pay a dev shop to build what we thought uh, Green Pal should be, when none of us knew how to code. Uh, we pissed away nine months and one hundred fifty thousand dollars. The nine months is probably much more value is much more valuable than the one hundred fifty grand. And so, like that was a big waste, and it almost tanked the company. We almost gave up after that, and it was because 
we tried to delegate uh, software development when none of us knew how to develop software. It's kind of like if you were going to open a new restaurant and uh, maybe a five-star restaurant and you yourself as the founder aren't interested in recipes, you've never cooked shit, you don't know any chefs, and but yet you still open the restaurant. You've never been to a restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Or you, you know, you're not a tinkerer. You don't love to cook at home. Uh, you know, or you've never like tried to invent a new recipe or something, and yet you're gonna be in the restaurant business. Um, and and you're not passionate about developing new recipes and all these things. Like that's kind of how stupid it was for us to try to build a tech business and delegate the software development when we didn't know how to develop software. So we had to get like dangerous, like eighty twenty good. And then we could develop, then we could delegate it. So that, that's how it's worked out for me. You got to be like half-ass good at these things before you try to de- delegate them. <laughs> I, I'm envisioning like uh, the uh, believe sign from Ted Lasso or like the Notre Dame, like uh, play like a champion today, except just be half-ass good at some shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, throw another, I'll throw another video game metaphor at you uh, that, that, that helps me make sense of, of, the, of the business world. It, Super Mario Kart. You had, uh, you had all these different drivers, and they were all, like, really good at one thing. You had Bowser, who was the, the fastest top end, but he was slow off the line. Toad, which handled really good. Uh, you had Yoshi, which, which also handled, but had a little bit better acceleration. Princess was the fastest off the line, had shitty top end. And then you had Mario. Mario was, like, like half-ass good at all these things. He wasn't the best driver for, like, the hard courses, but if you were first like trying to get to know the game, he was he was the best driver for you to to select because he was pretty good at all this stuff. And so you kind of want to be Mario when you're starting a new business. You want to be half-assed good at probably 20 different things. I feel like you might have played some Mario Kart in your day because that, that's the most detailed <laughs> breakdown of the skills of that all-star team I've ever heard. <laughs> but, I loved that game growing up. He, <laughs> it was great. Well, Mario, I'll, I'll give him full ass on the mustache, though, because that's iconic. <laughs> <laughs> And then speaking of uh, unique skills like that, what's a weird talent you have? Something uh, besides Mario Kart or cooking that you're pretty good at, but it doesn't really impact your business. You just have a knack for it. Man, so I wish somebody 20 years ago would have gotten me into martial arts uh, sooner in my life. So I'm 42 years old and I started, I don't know why, I think I saw I think I saw a special like a, a documentary on Krav Maga. And I thought, you know, that's some cool shit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to learn that. I don't know why, but I did. And I hired a coach. And so I started working with him. And then I got into Muay Thai boxing and, and, uh, and did just, uh, American boxing. And, and I've, I'm not like a really good fighter or anything, but I've gotten decent at, at kickboxing and, and, and Krav Maga, which, which actually saved my life traveling one time. But it's something weird that, that I like and, uh, and, and that has ha- actually saved my life. Let's fight it out through the uh, last part, which is rapid-fire Q&A. You ready for it? Let's do it. All right. Let's get wild. You are, uh, as we speak, you are recording this from Chile. So that's just a little bit of an example of uh, your passion for travel and kind of running this business around the world. But uh, what is your favorite hidden gem spot you've ever traveled to that maybe not many people know how beautiful it is? Uh, There's an island in the Caribbean that not a lot of people know about called San Andres. And it's actually uh, Colombian territory, but it's like kind of near the coast of Nicaragua. It's like got Maldives style like beaches and water. And I was really surprised by it. Super cheap. 
but you can't get there from the United States. You have to be you have to be in uh, Peru or Colombia. The only flights to it. That is a really really cool place. That if anybody's just like going around backpacking around South America, that's a cool place to check out. I'm in Chile right now, and I really want to go out to Easter Island, but uh, it's closed due, due to COVID. I like those little like little islands that just uh, seem to be like removed from everything. You're an avid book reader, especially business books. What if there was only one business book you could read for the rest of your life, and you had to read it once a year minimum? What would that book be, and why? This is a good question because sometimes, like, I started reading really, really heavily in my late twenties, early thirties, and I wish I had started it in my early twenties. And I would read everything I get my hands on, and it really helped me. It helped me like level up my thinking and helped me uh, look at things differently. And, and, but now that I've probably read, I don't know, uh, maybe a book a month over the last 10 years. So a few hundred books. Now I'm starting to think that it's not ideal to read everything. It's to like have 10 things and then just reread those. And, and so that's what I'm starting to do now. And so, and so the main book that I get the most value of, and I try to read every year is the seven habits of highly effective people by Dr. Stephen Covey. It's not necessarily like a 100% business book, but there's so many things in that book that dovetail into effective business that uh, that have been foundational to how I've built GreenPal. And I wish I had that. I don't know when that book came out, probably 20 years ago. I wish I have wish I have read it like every year over the last 20 years. I still do read it every year. And and then I also try to like mix in like an audible uh, version because it's it's a fun book to listen to. And Dr. Stephen Covey reads it. He's he he passed away a few years ago. But he reads it, and he was, God, that guy was a saint. What is your favorite, hands-down, restaurant in Nashville? Ooh, the Nashville food scene has really, 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 really blown up. And and we're known for, I guess our thing is is hot chicken. Yeah, I'm, my mouth is on fire just thinking. I've had some really hot <laughs> renditions. Listen, some of that shit is too hot. <laughs> yeah. Well said. <laughs> Some of it's too hot. But there's Prince's hot chicken in North Nashville, which is like the old school uh black owned restaurant that is like those those guys were like like have been they were making hot chicken before it got super popular. It's the best in town. So yeah, that's my favorite that's my favorite restaurant for anybody who doesn't live in Nashville who's looking for a Nashville experience. I like it. Prince's hot chicken. My buddy Mark and I visited our friend John in Nashville, I don't know. This is probably four years ago at this point. He wanna he took us to Hattie B's and one of the locations that we literally sat out. <laughs> we waited in line in the parking lot for like forty five minutes on a hundred plus degree day. <laughs> it was really good, but uh, they weren't good. kidding when it was hot. <laughs> and then it was hot, and then it was hot on top of hot. Yeah. And and uh, last one, what is your favorite course, a racetrack in uh, Mario Kart? Oh wow, God! I can't remember the name of it, but it was the one that was like it floated in the air, and you you could fall off at any- Rainbow Road. Yeah, Rainbow Road. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, you had to have Toad on that one <laughs> because he could handle like hell around those curves. You didn't want Mario on that course. <laughs> Maybe you did. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you know he'd be pretty good at everything, but just not that good at everything. <laughs> yeah. No, but that's great. That that one was. Uh, if you were young enough, that one was intimidating because it's. Uh, it could fall off pretty easily. But oh, great stuff, great memories. Well, Brian, thank you so much for for all you do and and your multiple businesses and and your love of lung care smells. No, I'm just kidding. No, but uh, for for coming on the show and, and and sharing your your wisdom and advice with us today. 
if you're interested in, in checking out GreenPal, you can go to GreenPal.com. You can download the app on the app stores. Uh, any Anything else you want to shout out from social media or just contact standpoint? Every now and then, folks hit me up that listen to my interviews, and, and, and Instagram's the best place to reach. Best place to reach me. You can find me at Brian M. Clayton. Just drop me a DM there, and I'll hit you back. Perfect. Final thoughts. It could be a quote, a line, whatever you want. Take us home here. Uh, stage is yours. I listened to an interview the other day with Mark Andreessen, who is like a famous venture capitalist now, and he is the guy. He's the guy who invented, basically invented the modern web browser. They invented what we know as the web browser today back in like 1992. And he talks about when he moved out to Silicon Valley in 1992. uh, This is the dawn before the World Wide Web. And they're writing the web browser. And the feeling and sentiment that he had and his contemporaries had was, we missed it. We're too late. And that every, all the opportunities were locked up and that there was no way to break in and that they were too late. They missed the explosion. And that's what they thought. And they almost moved back home to like it was somewhere in Illinois. And, but they stuck it out. And how hilarious. Like this was like minute one of second one of minute one of day one of the explosion of, of, of the Internet. And this guy was part of like maybe you, you could consider him the founder, the, the father of the modern web. Anyway, so he says that they, you know, he felt that that they missed it, and 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 how silly is that looking backwards? So my, I think what I took away from that is that like you can all you always feel like that. You always feel like you missed it. You always feel like oh I'm too late, you know uh, I'm too late to the game on the gig economy or crypto or SaaS or construction or real estate or whatever. And the fact is, is it always gets bigger. It always gets bigger the opportunities always compound and you didn't miss it. Like you, you got to get in the game because only when you're in the game, can you win? It's in the game. Shout out John Madden. Thank you so much, Brian Clayton for sharing your sensational green pal and peach tree stories and all the wisdom you've learned in your, in your entrepreneurship and Mario Kart journey. And thank you wild listeners for tuning in to another episode. If you want to hear more wild stories like this one, make sure to follow this podcast, the Wild Business Growth Podcast, on your favorite podcast listening app. And tell a friend about the podcast. And then challenge them to uh, who can mow the lawn faster, whether it's your lawn or somebody else's lawn. You might get kicked off the lawn or you might just keep doing it quicker. Who knows? You can also find us on Good Pods, where there are awesome podcasts and podcast recommendations recommendation slash people. And for any help with podcast production, you can learn more at maxpodcasting.com. Until next time, let your business run wild. Bring on the bongos! Bongos!